0: Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host Marcus Lura, and we have a gentleman calling in all the way from Philadelphia today, Mister Ses Berger. Welcome to the podcast, Ses. Marcus, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, this is our second round here, and we won't go into why. Um, We'll leave that as secret (laughs) between us here. Um, But uh, this time we are recording, and therefore um, I'll be excited to be, be releasing this very soon here before the holidays. Um, but, you know, before we go there and, and jump too far ahead here, let me first do a quick introduction for everyone who might not recognize you. Uh, Seth is one of the co-founders of And One, one of the top, uh, basketball shoe brands in the world till today. Um, and he was founded that sort of coming out of, out of high school university here, uh, in the early 90s. Uh, and we're going to do a deep, nice look into this because it's just such an amazing story and brand behind it says um, then founded a couple other companies uh, on the back of it, and we're going to dive into that as well. And says is currently the managing director of the Sixers Innovation Lab, uh, which is part of Harry, Bl- Her- Harris Blitzer Sports and Entertainment Group, obviously linked to the 76ers, Philadelphia 76ers, the basketball NBA team there. Um, so we're going to and I'll go have another deep look into what uh, the seventy sixers, the, sorry, the sixes Innovation Lab is all about, um, and and the great work you guys are doing there. So those are sort of the big parts are, and I am sure we'll have some other fun stories in between here. Um, but let's go back really how it all started, um, because that in itself is already such a great story. So, says so please share with us how. And one, you know, got started because I remember last time you shared that it was the original idea was something very different.
1: Yes. So and one started as so many entrepreneurial journeys did, uh, you know, in that I was struggling to find a real job. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I, I had. I had worked in politics for a couple of years out of undergrad. I went to University of Pennsylvania. Then uh, at 23, I went back to grad school and I got an MBA at the Wharton School. Right. Uh, I, in the first summer, <clears throat> did a summer internship in investment banking. To say that I was terrible would be uh, an understatement. Uh, and so unlike most of my cohort mates at grad school at the end of the summer, I did not get the Thanks so much for coming, and we're looking forward to have you back next year. Here's your signing bonus and your first year salary. Uh, I gotta. Thanks so much for coming. (laughs) Um, But (laughs) and and, you know, I knew also I I knew that that uh, I couldn't do that life. That that uh, being in the corporate world was just not being in the corporate world was just was just not going to be for me in so many ways. Um, But but while I was at grad school, I had done a research project for a business called the hoop. You know, I I grew up playing basketball. I played JV basketball in college when I was in grad school. I spent more time playing basketball than I did studying. Um, unfortunately my grades would reflect that. Uh, and so (laughs) I had done this, this research project, uh, and, and by hook or crook, I actually found myself in my second year of grad school in the final round for investment banking jobs in public finance. Uh, And there was a really key decision I had to make. You know, I was, at that time, I was 25. I had no wife, no kids. I was broke. I was used to being broke. Um, I wore t-shirts and shorts and and drove a Honda Civic Hatchback and was really comfortable with that life. Um, I was... I had made it to the third round of interviews with Goldman Sachs and Smith Barney for their public finance jobs. And at the same time, I had done this research project for the hoop. Right. And then we had kind of modified the hoop to a business called the and one database marketing business. And this was before Al Gord invented the internet Uh, back in 1993, uh, when lists and lists of consumers didn't exist, right? Um, So the idea for the N1 database marketing business, and this was literally the only A I got in grad school, was that we were going to acquire the list of these thousands of consumers and sell those lists to Foot Locker, Nike, Reebok, and you name it. Hmm. So long story short, I go to New York for a full day of interviews with Smith Barney, and I'm, I'm thinking I did great. And the next morning, I'm supposed to go to a full day of interviews at Goldman Sachs. <clears throat> and I do what I recommend a lot of young men should do when they have big decisions to make. is I got my best friend. We went to a bar. We met up with two other very close friends. Uh, you may or may not know them. One was named Jose Cuerbo and the other is named Jägermeister. Uh, so, so my best friend my best friend Jay Gilbert um, from from high school who had worked at, at McKinsey and gone to Stanford super bright guy great friend uh, my best friend still today he and I and Jose and Yeager uh, spent a few hours together at a local bar and he gave me advice that the same it was the same advice that my business school professor who was my mentor in, in, in the And One Database marketing business research project gave me he said listen you're 25. You got no wife, no kids. If you don't go to pursue a business now, when will you do it? Right. And if you do and it doesn't work, in two years, you can go get a job. Right. You know, like you'll yep. be 27 with a warden degree. What's the worst that's going to happen here? You're, you're broke now, you'll still be broke. And <laughs> so sad. I was like, Jay, You are my guy. You're my best friend for so many good reasons. So, uh, you know, I went back to my parents' apartment, slept on the couch that they had replaced my bed with. And the next morning at 8 o'clock, I got up and I called the guy at Goldman Sachs. And I I said, thanks so much for the opportunity. I want to let you know that I'm I'm not coming in today for the final round of interviews. I'm going to go start my own business. And he said, no, you're not. Now, now, back then, two out of 800 kids in the class started our own businesses out of grad school. The opportunity cost was so high, and businesses right. took so long to grow back then without technology. Right. So I was like, no, man, like I, really, I, I'm going to go start my own business. It's going to be the N1 database marketing business and basketball. I love basketball. I want to spend my life in basketball, and, and I'm going to start my own business. And he says, so you're going to work for Smith Barney, huh? And I was like no I'm going to start my own business he said alright listen kid if it doesn't work out you can always call So thanks yeah. so much so then I called the managing director of Smith Barney and this is when I knew I'd make the right decision because
0: he said the same thing
1: <laughs> <laughs> he said and, he, and he'd become a friend of mine Henry Reyes he, I said Henry hey I'm, I'm not coming you know, thanks so much for yesterday I want to remove my name from the process I don't want to take a job for somebody else because I'm gonna go start my own business. And he says, exactly, you're gonna work for Goldman Sachs. I was like, no man, I'm gonna go start my own business. Uh, So with that, I literally went back uh, to to school. I walked across to then the bursar's office, it was really easy to get student loans back then. And I just maxed out my student loans, maxed out my visas and, and started the N1 database marketing business, which for the record, as we've talked about in the past, was a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> yes. I, gra- I graduated in May 17th, 93, started the N1 database marketing business, and within six weeks, we realized it was a horrendous idea, and not only was I broke, but I was going to stay broke, except with more debt. Oh, yeah. uh, but we quickly pivoted to to apparel and footwear, and, and in in the business of starting the database business, we realized that there was an opportunity in basketball apparel, and we could niche effectively Nike and Adidas and Reebok if we stuck to what we loved and what we knew, which was the basketball consumer. And that was really the, the beginning of and one. It was actually in a pizza shop in Chicago. We actually have we'd gone to a trade show and we made a final decision to basically dump the database business and start an apparel business. And my partner, Jay, still has framed those little pizza place napkins where we had 15 slogans, which, which formed the beginning of oh, our brand. And, and so that's how it started. It was yeah. awesome. It was great. We were Amazing. three kids, 25, 25 and 21. And I just loved what just love we were done doing love basketball and, and wanted to do it.
0: Yeah. That's an awesome story. It's a great warm up there uh, for a for our, a little more basketball story. Uh, but before we get into you know the, the you know obviously you launched and uh, uh, I guess t shirts first and uh, then the shoes came later. But, you know I, I definitely want to go back in there. But I want to just sort of now in hindsight, right? Since you've uh, you know whatever twenty years 20, 30 years later here, um, do you feel? You are a natural entrepreneur, and therefore, that was really your calling or it was just, you know, by that time you didn't know better and thought that this sounds like a good idea.
1: It's a great question. I there, there are two things that I really want to do with my days. And one is have fun and two is make a difference. Right. Uh, and, and, and whatever I'm pursuing, if, if it can fill both of those buckets, fantastic. If, if it can fill neither of those buckets, life is too short. Uh, you know, if anything, this this last year has shown us that. Right. Um, and so for me, you know, I was one of those kids that when I was in school, the idea that I was going to be in finance or in marketing or in sales or whatever it was, I felt like I was going to use one part of my brain. Mm. And what entrepreneurship does for me is two, two things. One is it, it is you have to use your entire brain. You know, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you have to be able to play different roles at different times, whatever your team needs, right? Right? And the second thing is, when you're an entrepreneur, it is a constant game. You are winning or you are losing every single day. And competing is, right? And competing is really fun for me. Mm. You know, competing is more fun than winning. It It is being in the game that is so much fun. Right. And entrepreneurship, I think, is just a constant game every single day. So I I think probably growing up playing sports, um, you know, made me love that competition and, and, and relish that excitement. And so I think I probably was probably became an entrepreneur as a kid. Um, but also, you know, importantly, Marcus, my dad started a law firm in 1969 with zero clients and like four years, four years of experience. <laughs> right. uh, and, and he was broke, he was broke for a long time. And and I saw his example of, Hey, you know what, I'm, uh, this is fun and I can make a difference and, and, and this would be a great way to spend my day. So I think I probably was raised an entrepreneur as opposed to born one, born right. one, um, and loved it, you know, loved it. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, am sh- and you as an entrepreneur as well, like. It, it, people talk about entrepreneurs and not having a fear of failure. I, I really don't think that's that's what it is. I think we accept failure as part of the process all the time, but we want to love what we do every single day. Right. And that's what I think true entrepreneurs are. They just want to love what they do.
0: That, that is true. Yeah, I, I do think, having come across many entrepreneurs, and if I look at myself, there is a little bit of that. Your You have a fairly high pain threshold, which I think – the average person, maybe who just grabs a job or works in a job, might not have, um, you know, and that that pain is is again, you know, all the failures you're dealing with, right, and and, and the anxieties you have, and um, you know, you might not doesn't mean you don't have that in a in a I guess uh, a regular job, but uh, that, that's what I've seen though. Do you feel you have that sort of pay, pain threshold as well?
1: I do, and I think I think another way to think about it is pride and ego. One of my favorite sayings is ego is the brother of insecurity. And I don't have time for either. Mm. And so I think part of the reason that people shy away from being entrepreneurs is that the pain and the humiliation of failure will be too much for them to take. Mm. And to your point, you're gonna fail every single day as an entrepreneur. It's just a guarantee. You know, if, if you're selling a product, more people are going to say no than yes. And you will have climbed the mountain when you have sold your business And exited. And until then, (laughs) you are facing failure every single day. So I think you're totally right. If you can't deal with that pain, you can't be an entrepreneur. Um, It just kind of has to bounce off of you. You just accept it as part of the
0: process. Yeah, absolutely. Now, before we get you know into deeper into all this stuff, uh, I do want to talk more and one because it's just uh, as I said, such a great story from you know what we just heard already, how you started and taking it to you know the the second biggest uh, sneaker brand in the country or, or apparel, a football, a basketball apparel brand in the country. Um, so there's you know let's let's you know let's just go through this a little deeper. Um, Because you started off selling, you know, T-shirts, right, with slogans on it, et cetera, and, you know, before you ever had had your first shoe. Um, So again, just talk us a bit through that, the early days of the company before you ended up at $285 million worth of revenue here.
1: Sure. The first and most important thing in anything we did is that we were our consumer. Uh, We we loved basketball. We were twenty one, twenty five and twenty five year old kids. And we decided we were going to focus on the 16 year old male male basketball consumer uh, and that we were going to someday be synonymous with basketball to that consumer. And that meant excluding other sports and other products. That was a really important decision we made right away. So for us. When you have no money and you have no experience, the easiest thing to do is silk screens and T-shirts. We had a really good logo. We called him the player. He a raceless, faceless embodiment of a basketball player in the 90s. Every kid could identify with him. Right. We had some slogans. And we literally, Marcus, we literally used to take Polaroids. Kids wouldn't know what Polaroids are today. Yeah. We used to take instant, instant photographs of ourselves, acting out the T-shirts, walk them three blocks to a comic book artist, who would render who is a Marvel comic artist who would render these these polaroids into actual graphics we would take the graphics to a silk screener the silk screener would you know give us a few hundred shirts and then we would take the shirts go in my you know go into my Honda Civic drive up to hundred twenty-fifth street in New York drive down to Macon Georgia see mom and pops and see big corporates um, literally rolling in with our t-shirts in my best friend's garment you know a travel bag <laughs> he literally I can still see his north face bag. we used to run into we used to literally run into stores and anyone that would see us would be like hey you want to see what I got behind door number one <laughs> you know showing our t-shirts <laughs> and, and we got like you know we got kicked out of stores um, so it, it was amazing so that that's really how we started yeah, and what happened and we got yeah. very lucky you know, obviously, any, any business person that ever tells you he or she is successful because they worked hard, they had great teammates, they they understood the market, and they forget to add the element of luck. They're either lying to you or they're lying to themselves. You know, we got super lucky, for example. In the fall of 93, when we were first going to sell our T-shirts, yeah. Michael Jordan retired from basketball for the first time. Okay. And as hard as it is to imagine today, the first time Jordan retired, his apparel and footwear stopped selling. Hmm. So all of the retailers who needed basketball apparel on their shelves all of a sudden gave us an opportunity and had Michael Jordan not retired, I wouldn't be on this podcast with you. (laughs) Right. So, so we so we started out selling t-shirts and retailers measure sell through based on how much you push every week. And the average push is 5% a week. Long story short, we were in ten foot lockers in February of ninety-four, and our stuff sold out at 37, and forty-one percent, our three T-shirts. Right. So by July of nineteen ninety-four, we were in fifteen hundred doors nationwide in foot locker. And so we basically entered the market from below with mom and pops and from the top with the number one national retailer in basketball. Right. So we got super lucky to, to for them to see us except us and then for the stuff to sell out yeah. and then from there we went into shorts uh, you know we thought we, we, we understood what the next version of shorts were going to be so we made really big baggy thick right. mesh basketball shorts we called them game shorts and they had in, in 90 we introduced them in the spring of 95 and they had similar success right. and then eventually we went into shoes in 96 and we said let's risk the entire company to try to get in the footwear business and we almost went bankrupt uh, by taking that risk but, but, it, but it worked out
0: yeah I was going to say, because yeah, going from, from T-shirts to sneakers, there's a little bit of a jump, right? There's slightly more, uh, more to it uh, to build a proper sneaker. Uh, you're producing them in, the, in China, or where, where was your manufacturing? Correct. Yeah.
1: Correct. So we had made, made our T-shirts in the U.S., and then we started making our shorts initially in the U S and, and we were only losing $2 per every short when we started. So it was a great business. We figured we could make it up with the volume. If we would lose $2 at every short eventually, if we sold a million shorts, we could only lose 2 million bucks. So we quickly <laughs> had had to pivot and, and make our, make our shorts. We made our shorts in Taiwan. And then we, we met a couple of agents uh, who basically hooked us up with factories and, Went over to China to meet with basically three factory owners. We ended up doing a, creating a relationship with uh, one factory who uh, had made a bunch of other shoes. You know, for the, the factories make the shoes for most of the same brands: Nike, Reebok, and Adidas. Um, and they were incredibly trusting of us uh, in terms of how they allowed us to basically finance our business. So when we started N One, we raised fifty thousand dollars. Mm excuse me, in September of 93 for pre-sold t-shirts, we didn't raise another penny of equity capital until we were doing hundred million bucks of business. Wow. And we had par- partners who trusted us that we were going to pay them when we got paid before we paid anybody else. We didn't pay ourselves. Um, but yeah, we went into shoes and, you know, it's a really ama- amazing story because not only did we decide to take the risk to go into shoes, we signed an endorser um, out of Georgia Tech, a, fr- a kid who had left, uh, Georgia Tech is a freshman, Stefan Marbury, yeah, and we had been able to convince him to come with us instead of going with Nike, Reebok, and Adidas. Right. And then we still almost went bankrupt. Check this out. So, so in in '96, we um, we had six million dollars of shoes on the water. Okay, and we didn't have six million dollars in the bank, right? right. So six million dollars in shoes on the water. They were so they were. It is it is late November. And they're supposed to. Sorry, it's early November, and they're supposed to to hit hit this the uh, the shore in LA like November fifteenth, and right. be in the stores December first, right? For Christmas. Yeah. And Stefan Marbury's is a, right. Stefan is a lead guy. We're introducing the Marbury one, the first and one shoe ever. What?
0: Right.
1: And I can still see it today. We were Jay and I and I, my partner we were sitting at the end of the Minnesota Timberwolves bench. He played for the Timberwolves. Timberwolves had given us these great seats. Hmm. We had given away 20,000 t-shirts for the, with the marketing campaign, breaking ankles with Stephon Marbury, a picture of Stefan basically crossing up another player with an x-ray of that supposed player's broken ankle. We spent $2 million on a TV commercial, mostly on ESPN breaking ankles with Stefan Marbury. So four minutes into the game, Stefan Marbury in his third game, wearing the n one Marbury one shoes, goes drives down the middle of the lane jumps up and I can still see Cadillac Anderson's feet. They call him Cadillac Anderson because his feet were as big as Cadillacs. (laughs) Stefan lands on Cadillac Anderson's foot. He rolls his ankle. He is crying on the floor. They carry him, literally sit him down at the end of the bench next to me and Jay. He looks at me and Jay like he wants to kill us. (laughs) And and he has he literally suffers a very severe high ankle sprain, and it's out into a marsh. and And I literally called my CFO and my head of PR, and I was like, "Yeah, we're going bankrupt. <laughs> We've got six million bucks in shoes on the water." all the retailers are going to cancel these orders because Barbara just basically broke his ankle in our shoes and we were running yeah, a campaign. You were running that <laughs> campaign. Oh my God. <laughs> we were running again. It was literally, you could not make up the story of all the things that had gone more wrong in one specific moment than this. That is <laughs> and, and it was wild. like, wow, this was great. It was a great three years. Thanks for coming. We had a shot. Everyone told us not to take the risk. We yeah. were like you said, immune to the risk and the pain and, well, there it is. Wow. And, um And we got really lucky because our retailers basically hung with us. The, sole, it, it, the, the shoes sold through, and then we got to the Marbury 2 that March, and, 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 you know, the rest is is, uh, is history. We ended up, we went, our revenue path was 1.7, 4.9, 14, 42, 70, 150, and it just, you know, for the first six years, our business was a straight hockey stick. We got lucky so many times um, in the process
0: that is awesome there now what, before we move on i wanted to stick a bit more that besides that you you know when they say you you really didn't compete head on the way I would com- uh, uh, describe it. You know you went the uh, the streetwear part, right, uh, which is now even bigger, right? Streetwear is such a big thing for you know all the brands going retro and, and all this stuff. Uh, but that was sort of your focus right from the get go. Um, and also you know you, then you created obviously the uh, uh, the mixtape tour, which again was all about street ballers uh, and so on. So. You know, I think that's you know that's there's another interesting element too. I think how you guys position it, and and I love the slogans again. I'd love to know who who came up with these slogans here. You know, the one I found is, is they call me mayor because all I do is uh, you know what it, all I do is I work from downtown or something like this, right? I mean, this is just <laughs> some great lines you guys are, are coming up coming up there. Um, who who was the creative guy in the group there who who created these slogans?
1: So I'll tell you, there's one of our partners, um, Tom Austin, is he was the creative genius behind most of the slogans. You know, every every Monday morning we had to come to the office with five slogans. And and the process usually went like this. You know, one of my partners would come up with five slogans. They were terrible. Another one would recite his five slogans. They were terrible. Jay would recite five. Maybe one was pretty good. I would recite five Every other week maybe one was good and Tom would recite like fifteen and fourteen were good. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and so and, the and Tom is still today, Tom Austin is still he's still the smartest person I've ever met today. He he is a genius, both left brain and right brain. He's creative, he's analytical, he's mathematical, he's he's everything. Right. And one day I asked him, I was like, Tommy, like, how do you come up with these slogans? And it, it's really an, an important story. He said, because I I was like, you know, look, I sit for like 30, 40 minutes. And I'm, you know, when I'm watching the game, I'm trying to come up with some stuff. And he said, well, you know, I wake up Sunday, have breakfast. And then I sit in my room and think for about 12 hours. And eventually I have, you know, know, 10 or 15 slogans. And, And, you know, in all seriousness, probably four or five of the 10 or 15 are good. And I'm like, wait a minute. You spent 12 hours by yourself with no interruption, no sound, no nothing. And he's like, well, yeah, that's the total focus I need to do a great job of this. And it's, it was amazing to me because that is the total focus that an athlete needs to be great, that an entrepreneur needs to be great. Like if you are really committed, like don't focus on something to which you will not commit and don't commit to something on which you will not focus. And Tom was totally committed and totally focused. And it was a great lesson. The other part of it is, um, and and this applies also to the mixtape tour. It's an amazing what you can accomplish when you don't care who gets the credit. So for us as a team, we were all aligned. We all had equity, we all wanted to succeed. We all wanted to win. It didn't matter whose idea it was. There was no pride of ownership in the the ideas themselves. We just wanted to make the best decisions and have the best ideas. Mm. So the mixtape tour, in fact, wasn't even an idea that came up within the company. It was a 25 year old kid named Bernie who had the idea. He was working at our ad agency, Crispin Porter Bogusky out of Miami. Right. And one day he said, hey, you guys had this videotape from this Rucker All-Star game a few years ago. You should put it to music and make a mistape, mixtape out of it. And, and people will love it. And I, was, I said, well, what are you talking about? It's just like New York City basketball. And he's like, well, Seth, you grew up in New York City. Most of the people outside New York City and at least a number of other cities have not seen this type of basketball. You need to kind of share it with the world. Um, yeah. And I think it's a really important lesson. Like, if you're a really good entrepreneur, really good business person, really good coach, really good athlete, you don't really care if the idea is yours. You just want to get to the right uh, answer. Right. Um, and so the Mixtape, Mixtape Tour, the original idea actually didn't come from us. It came from someone outside the company. But we were... Smart enough to listen, yeah. right? And to be like, oh, and, dang, and again, that makes sense. I, I do
0: believe that you know, from you know, reading all a bit about the history, of course, uh, this was definitely one of the little big breakthroughs, right? You took the tour around the world, then you know, um, now today it's it's it has a different name, right? I think it's called Street, street Ball um, Tour. But it is really what I even I remember, uh, you know, watching M1 coming into Asia. Uh, this was really what was, what M1 was all about. It's this sort of street basketball part of it. Now everyone else has a three on three event, you know, Adidas and Nike doing the same thing. But I felt like that was really where you guys came in and and just changed the changed the the way people were looking at it, right? Being this sort of streetwear brand, street ball brand.
1: So I'll tell you what's interesting. When we saw when when we started the, when the mixtape tour became streetball, the TV show, and the mixtape tour. At that point, we were doing roughly $150 million bucks in sales. Mm. You know, give or take a little bit, maybe 175 whatever it was. Our business went up and came right back down.
0: Okay. And
1: I was concerned that when we sold N1, we had 103 NBA basketball players wearing our shoes. 103. We had 23% oh. of the league. By far, the second most Uh, number of players in the league of any of the sneaker brands. But to your point, most people knew us for the mixtape tour. And that took us out of the aspirational performance of being the best NBA basketball player you can be. Mm -hmm. So whether it was Latrell Sprewell, Kevin Gardner, Stefan Marbury, most consumers knew us for the mixtape tour. And so I'm not really sure whether that actually helped our growth or hurt our growth at the end of the day. Um, But, What it was was amazing, and and we go back to have fun, make a difference. What was amazing about it was all of a sudden there was an opportunity for, you know, 15, 20 guys to be professional basketball players in the United States and around the world and have these careers that they weren't otherwise going to have because, you know, this new vehicle existed. And in terms of fans, they got to see like the excitement in the arenas when these guys would play was amazing Mm. Um, so I don't I would never necessarily change the business outcome and try to stop that process because I thought it was you know the mixtape tour and street ball was beautiful in and of itself whether it was good or bad for business I think is actually debatable over time okay interesting we clearly got known, we clearly got known for it. like you were obviously, could tell from the surprise, you were surprised we had 103 NBA ballplayers wearing our shoes. Like no way would you have imagined that, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> um, right, yeah, you knew Professor, you knew Hot Sauce and Main Event, and and and, and, and I was glad for people to know us by like them as well. Yeah. Um, you know, great guys, great ballplayers, yeah.
0: Interesting. Now I have two last, actually, I need to quote one more here, it's just so much fun. My game is like rice, one minute and you're done. <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> right. That's just, that's I don't the, know. crazy. Okay, now, obviously, before, we, we, by wrapping up the the M one part is you know you sold the business um, to a venture firm in two thousand five. Um, tell us about that because it's it's a very it's an emotional thing for any entrepreneur who started a business. You know, put his blood, blood sweat, and tears into it, um, and clearly this is what you guys did. Uh, you know, you you, uh, you you sweated it out, and now is that moment, and is it was a like wow this is what we all worked for or what was the feeling there Uh,
1: interesting so let me give you the exact history in 99 we sold a piece of the firm to a piece of the company to a venture firm TA Associates out of Boston Hmm. Um, and in in that correct 99 right we sold the entire company in 2005 so in 99 um, and that company, the company was cash flow positive and had plenty of cash. That company, that cash went into uh, the founders and original investors' uh, pocketbooks. So, again, an initial investor put in five thousand bucks, and he got back three hundred thousand dollars on his initial five thousand dollar investment six years wow. later, right? And and we and we the partners went from broke to should never be broke again. We did not get fabulously wealthy. So, like the the image of, you know, when you have a company this big, we have lots of partners. We gave away we gave lots of equity, um, and to everyone that we could in the company, and and um, but but I went from literally in a flash, I had not paid off a penny of principal of my student loans in 1999 to. I, I, I'm paying off my student loans. I actually didn't want to pay off my student loans. I I told my wife, I said, no, I want to pay this every month. So I remember what it was like to be broke. And I never want to forget that. And she said, hell no, (laughs) I don't want to do this every month. We're paying off your student loans. (laughs) And we're paying off her student loans from college. We're paying off our student loans. Um, You know, what was, what was, what that transaction was, was great. But what it also meant to your point was that there was going to be another transaction and we were eventually going to sell and one.
0: Um,
1: and then in 2000 and and after that transaction, our business went up, went back down and went back up and we sold it on the way back up in 2005. If we had maximized it, we would have sold it in 2001 In 2005. We sold it to a private shoe company, American sporting goods. Right. At that point, I had been doing the business for 12 years. Uh, my partners and I all kind of came from like the not for profit government world. Hmm. And, you know, we've all wanted to, and, and, and you can see in the things we've done after and One, just want to make a difference with our lives. Right. Um, and, and none of us, I think, envisioned ourselves being like shoe dogs till we were 75, 80 years old, trying to make more money in shoes. Right. Right. Um, so when the opportunity to sell the business came, I think we were ready to sell the business. I really missed the people because I worked with my best friends and the people that I worked with who weren't my friends became my best friends. Mm. So what was hard about selling that business was not that I wasn't gonna go to work every day to sell shoes to Foot Locker and you know, deal with endorsers and all those sorts of things. What, what was hard was I wasn't gonna see these people again for the rest of our lives. You know, Like when you work with somebody, you interact with them every single day. And you know, some of us, like I'm really blessed to really like the people with whom I work. Um, and so when, you know, when you work in a company of a hundred people and you care about a hundred people, you're not gonna see most of those people again. Right. Um, and that was really, that was that was the hardest part of it. It wasn't about the business at that point, but it was like, man, I'm not gonna see these people again. Uh, you know, there are a couple people in the company this year that passed from COVID. And I literally had not seen them since the day we we sold the company and, and you know, we all kind of exited. Mm. Um, and that was that was, re- that was really hard. That was really sad. I, you know, I, I love the people that we had in that company.
0: Yeah, uh, I can imagine. I mean, like I said, it's an incredible story and, and we could spend the whole podcast just on it. But we have a few other things we wanted to cover. So I, I do want to move on. But I have one last question because it just, uh, you know, coming here out of Asia, why do you guys? Where does the name Tai Chi come from in your in your shoe? I know what it is, but you know, but uh, how on earth? Why would you use the word Tai Chi?
1: Yeah, so if you look at the design of the shoe, um, and you look at the de- and the original design of Tai Chi, that was actually the inspiration for the shoe. So Tai Chi Yin Yang, right. um, and you know, right? And so the actual design, if you look at the shoe from the top down, it's Almost that yin yang Tai Chi design. Mm. And so that, you know, the designer basically took that visual and made it into a shoe. And that was the shoe that Vince Carter won the slam dunk contest with. Um, We're wearing the shoes for free, by the way, in terms of luck. Like we literally, he was in between (laughs) sneaker. Yeah, he was in between sneaker company deals. He had left Puma, had not yet signed with Nike, his agent at the time who eventually ended up going to jail. He embezzled from a bunch of money. Um, he, His agent at the time was talking to us, was talking to Nike, was talking to Adidas, and he went to the All-Star game and he didn't want to, he wasn't going to sign a contract before the All-Star game and we had sent him some shoes like everybody else had. And we were as surprised as anybody else when he walks out on a dunk contest and is wearing the tie sheets oh,
0: right, awesome.
1: winning, you know, at that time was one of the best dunk, dunk contests ever yeah. in our shoes. <laughs> right. Yeah, awesome. Um, you know, we, we had signed the Charles free in terms of luck. We had signed the Charles free when he was in golden state after he was suspended, he gets traded to the New York Knicks. Um, they are uh, in, in ninth place out of eight for the NBA playoffs. They find their way into eighth, eighth place. They beat the Miami Heat on a buzzer beat around Houston in the first round. It's eight versus one in the Eastern Conference. Long story short, we're running a TV commercial with the Trails Freewell, right. thinking thinking, you know, they're going to be not in the playoffs. They go all the way to the NBA finals, Free averages 28 points a game. And in the eighteen months after that, our sales tripled from seventy to two hundred ten million. Wow! If Free doesn't get traded from Golden State to New York, if Allen Houston doesn't yeah. shoot a brick that goes in, and the and the Knicks don't go all the way to the NBA Finals again, I'm not on this podcast with you. And I had no control over any of that. That was just pure luck, yeah. right? It's, it's amazing it's, it's how really, much luck. It, it yeah, is.
0: exactly. And I've heard this so many times now when I interview other entrepreneurs that. As much as we all don't want it, you know, I mean, we all say we make our luck. And I do believe that's true, right, uh, through hard work and and whatever other things come to it. But it, sometimes it is luck and it also is timing, right? And that is a yes. great segue into the next one here because hoops Hoopstv.com, which was a project, yeah. interestingly enough, you started with Scott O'Neill, I believe, or, or Scott was part of it, Uh you know, that was where, you know, great idea, great concept, um, but it didn't obviously quite work as well as, as you guys had envisioned it, right? And, and maybe there, either whether the luck wasn't there or the timing wasn't so, wasn't as, as perfect, right? Well, talk a little bit about that.
1: That's right. So Scott and I had met in 1994, literally at my first trade show. I was wearing a T-shirt and shorts and Scott was wearing a suit and tie. He mm-hmm. was selling sponsorships for the Nets. And we've become really close right. uh, over the years. I think Scott is one of the most talented business people I've ever met. He's also a super close friend. He's also a leader and an incredibly caring person. So... I thought what I should do is start a company and try to wreck this young man's career any way I could. I thought, you know, he's got (laughs) such a bright future, so let me start a company. Let me steal him away from his current job. Let me make him president and my partner, and then let me totally screw it up so I can hopefully make Scott O'Neill this great star that never was. And despite my best efforts, I couldn't do it. He has still turned out to be a rock star. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So we we started Hoopstv.com, and the idea was... A really good idea it was look there, there should be a place on the internet for basketball videos that shows everything from NBA all the way to streetball mm. and a place that is the house for basketball culture the problem was to your point is the concept needed broadband to be two years ahead of where it was at the time right. and so we had built this great house and unfortunately the walls kept crashing down mm. so we would we would literally, I remember our CTO at one point our management team was meeting and, and we had the same problem. We had spent a couple million bucks on TV and uh, we had a whole bunch of people coming to our website. The content was beautiful and the site would crash. And, and the CTO said, well, what do you want me to do? It's the internet. And my head of sales said, well, I'm not here for an art project, <laughs> um, <laughs> and so, <laughs> it was a great line. I'll never forget it. <laughs> That's I'll never a forget it. You know, like the creative, yeah, the creative technical guys. Like they just got to realize at the end of the day, these are supposed to be businesses, not their art projects. Yeah. Um, but so Scott and I tried as hard as we could, and we were just two years ahead of the curve. Mm. Um, and and you know, I learned a ton from it. Was you know, we became closer through the failure. Um, and and um, and I just you know think the world with him. So, in terms of luck you know, in in 2016, Scott's running HBSC. He's done an unbelievable job, um, with Josh Harris and David Blitzer and turning this franchise around and then acquiring the devils and crystal palace and building a multi-billion dollar organization. You know, these guys are amazing. And, and I was at that time, my kids were grown and I was thinking about going to buy a business. I was like, okay, it's 2016. Let me go make some more money. My kids are done spending time with daddy. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, and I was going to start a business, and Scott calls me and says, hey, listen, I'm starting the Sixers Innovation Lab. Um, do you want to run it? Uh, and the timing was literally perfect. He called me in January, and you know, we talked about it on and off for a few months and came up with the concept. He gave me basically a blank piece of paper with my partner, Ryan Schuett to come up with what the Sixers Innovation Lab really should be. But the concept is that we were going to leverage the know-how that Scott and Josh and David have, along with, their resources and their connections um, to help young businesses grow, and for me, is awesome because on the side, I'm a high school basketball coach. Um, I've coached, you know, three lottery picks and twenty odd Division One players, and seeing young people grow is really rewarding for me. And so, coaching effectively young entrepreneurs and investing in their businesses is a perfect way for me to spend. What will be my hopefully last career professionally? Um, yes. So this opportunity that Scott gave me, you know, to do this, just been amazing.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. And we're gonna get straight in there now. And, and just to comment on on I guess uh, hoops.tv. You know, we I've launched uh, I launched a sports fix, which was an OTT platform a few years back, and and we had we ended up a bit in a similar situation like you guys. Uh, it, we were a bit early. Um, we probably didn't have as much funding as we needed uh, to build that runway even though the idea made sense, um, and someone will, will do it. There's, there's no doubt about it that, uh, that the delivery over OTT, and and we, we, you know if you're watching what's going on around the world now, um, the way traditional television is struggling, will be there. Um, there's no doubt about it. But timing is such a crucial thing, and, and I see that all the time, that you know great ideas and great businesses just fail because of that. So uh, it's definitely an amazing lesson there uh, to be learned. Now, let's get yeah. into the, the Sixes Innovation Lab, right? Um, and you give a give a nice little prelude here already um, you guys are host you know you guys are based I guess out of the 76 training complex so it's that's an interesting one directly linked of course to the team um, and there's a whole bunch of services which you provide right there they're obviously um, different type of these sort of labs and, um, you know, incubators and, and all those kind of companies or, or institutions are out there. Um, how do you guys differentiate yourself? You know, what, what is the sort of the different USP you guys would be using?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think there are a few things that the Sixers innovation lab offers that is different than a standard accelerator or incubator, if you will. Yeah. First off, from a cash perspective, we'll invest up to a million bucks in new businesses. Mm. And usually, you know, accelerators are investing 100, 125 yeah, a hundred. grand.
0: That's right.
1: Yeah, if we're, we're we're willing to get behind our concepts and get behind our entrepreneurs um, in a more significant way right up front. Right. The second thing is, uh, as we talked about before, the combination of Josh Harris, David Blitzer, Scott O'Neill is this great group that both provides input into these businesses and also access to almost any business person we need to get to. Mm-hmm. We're basically one email away yes. from anyone there. I'm not really connected. should be told, they're very connected. Right. Mm-hmm. In addition to super smart. Right. So that's the second thing. We also, uh, our head of corporate PR, Laura Toscani Weems, is to like, say, she's a rock star is like saying Mick Jagger was pretty good in rock and roll. <laughs> like Laura <laughs> Scotty Williams is unbelievable and our companies get her services for free so Hydran for example one of our most successful companies right. when we launched their PR we were literally on Fox Business Last May was their biggest day of sales by in exponentially because of her, and she helps these young entrepreneurs prepare for mm-hmm. uh, the you know being in the, in the world of PR. We also have a relationship with Maven Creative, which is a strategic marketing agency out of Florida. Companies that come into the lab get 100 hours of services from Maven for free for website naming, logo, tagline, you name it. We have a relationship with Pepper Hamilton. I'm sorry, Traveling Pepper now. They've been acquired law firm. Um, And so we we, we put all those things together. It used to be the space, but now our companies are all over the country. We decided that we would just invest in entrepreneurs wherever they are. And if it meant Ryan and I needed to be on planes before COVID and after COVID, we're happy to do it. And then the thing that I think really important. And the reason that, quite frankly, I am doing this is we, Ryan and I view ourselves as part of our entrepreneurs management teams. Uh, We will only do four to six deals a year because we expect to, in the first year of a company, spend hours upon hours upon hours with them in any decision that they need help with. And we really view, you know, most entrepreneurial teams now are teams of two, sometimes three, but usually teams of two. And we view ourselves Mm -hmm. as a third part of the management team, some of the phrases that we will use is, is it takes two to disagree and one to referee or two can groupthink and one can break the process. So that's how we kind of really operate. Right, um, we will also, and I think also important for entrepreneurs is, we'll support them in series A. Uh, if a company's raising anywhere between three to five million bucks, we and our investor group can manage it up. internally. So yeah, so they don't need to waste the time six months, you know, trying to go raise money, if they're doing well, we're gonna support those companies. Yeah, awesome. So we really feel that with the combination of those resources um, that HBSC has, the capital, um, and the hours we're willing to commit, we should be able to help entrepreneurs make better decisions. Ultimately, right, the outcome of your life is influenced by two things, blocking the quality of your decisions, can't control your luck, you can control the quality of your decisions and so we try to help them make the best decisions they can.
0: So how many companies do you currently have under your cohort or whatever you call them? We have invested in
1: 14, we sold one or I should say they sold one Yeah, we have 13 that we're currently invested in. Um, There are some rock stars in that group, U.GG is an esports company, Hydrant is a hydration product. it's absolute rockstar star. A company in Better View is uh, in the sports gambling space. Another company in Lowkey.gg is in the esports space. Another company in power spike TV is in the streaming space. Okay. Uh, those are some of the companies that we've invested in that have done, you know, extremely well. Uh, our return on capital, I don't remember exactly what it was, mm-hmm. but I think at last take on paper it was 15x, and oh. so it's ridiculous. You mm-hmm. know, now we we had one small exit, so these are not yet exits. These are just, um, so race, you know, uh, valuations. Right. But, but most of them are now actually other investors doing series B series one, a or B deals. Um, so we've been really fortunate with, with the success that our companies have had. Yeah.
0: And you shared, obviously, a couple of examples just now, but uh, when I remember seeing here from your from your notes, um, you know, you, you focus on consumer-facing products, uh, consumer packaged goods, so ready drinks, so that's where hydrant, I guess, comes in, um, wellness uh, products, you know, sports betting, I guess, and esports. How did you define that? Was it… Anything which could fit and work, um, again, with the 76ers or the larger infrastructure of uh, Harris Blitzer's group? Or how do you guys pick who you're going after or, or working with?
1: Yeah, right. I have to give Josh and David a tremendous amount of credit here. So the original idea was that we were going to focus on sports, entertainment, and technology. Hmm. And, that, and that was in the world in which we were going to live. After a few months, I came to a con- couple of conclusions. Number one, I'm really comfortable in B2C. I don't really understand B2B and what makes one widget different than another, Um, but I'm really comfortable in understanding the consumer side of the business. But I also felt that if we focused only on sports entertainment, there were too few companies who were going to want valuations that were too high and were going to build businesses that were too small if they were trying to sell to professional and collegiate programs. So we needed to expand what we were going to do mm-hmm. and kind of change our, um, you know, our, uh, our governing rules, if you will. And so I, I said to them, I said, listen, let, let's have the freedom here to invest in, a, in any B2C business. It could be technology, sports, entertainment. It could be esports. It could be sports gambling. It could be consumer research. It could be apparel. Um, and let's and, and we'll find ways for HBSC to be able to help all of these companies because they these guys are so resourced.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, so we really try to focus in the B2C space. We know there's there's a, a recent B2B2C investment we've just made. There's a management team woman named Dana Kim, and her partner, Ethan Kellogg, both ones a Warden grad, ones a Penn Masters grad. Um, Dana had worked in consumer research before she went back to Warden. And as she was graduating, she was looking to pursue her business. And on the face of it, investing in a new consumer research firm is just kind of an odd thing for a venture capital firm to do. Right. Mm. But for us, we looked at Dane and Ethan as like, wow, this is an amazing team. They really understand their space. This is in consumer. So and there is a consumer element. So Ryan and I can provide some value here. And Dana doesn't need us to help understand what these companies need, right. um, and and a big part of what they do is branding and communication to the consumer. So, you know, would the Sixers innovate when you originate the idea for the Six Innovation Lab? Would you say we're going to invest in highlight um, a consumer research company? Mm-hmm. The, you would probably think no. But at the end of the day, we want to invest in great entrepreneurs. We want to see those entrepreneurs grow. We want to see them succeed. We want to make a difference in what they do. Um, and so that's why we decided to really expand to be the city.
0: Yeah, and that leads to a nice, another good question here. How do you look when you look at companies? What is the most important three things you focus on?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, so three things: market, team, idea, and it's and it's those things. First is 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 the market one that we understand that is either growing really quickly so it can scale or big enough that there's an opportunity to create a sizable niche, number mm-hmm. one, mm-hmm. right? So there are a lot of great business ideas, but the business is just too small yep. and the risk of failure is too high for us to invest. Second, and I think this is really most important, is do we believe in the team? Yep. Um, you know, we, we, we have had, of the companies that have done best, they've been great teams. We've had a harder time with solo entrepreneurs Um, And so we really believe in teams and we want to believe in, I would always invest in hire, bet on young, talented people who are super smart and see the world and think there's nothing they cannot do instead of someone who is experienced and looks at the world and thinks, well, I can't do this and I can't do that. That's kind of when we built in one, we would hire 21 year old kids and give them ridiculous amounts of responsibility because we believe at the end of the day, like most teams, most sports, talent's gonna win. So we wanna invest in really talented entrepreneurs. Um, And then the third is really the idea, because a lot of entrepreneurs, as you know, you come up with what you think is a good idea, but then you realize, as we did with AN1, three months in, you gotta pivot, and then you might have to pivot again, and you might have to pivot again. But if you have great teams, they'll figure out, right? What's interesting in business today, that is very different than when I started, is when, when we were in business back then, Without technology, for what it is today, you had to have the answers, and you had to guess right, and you had to really um, place some fifty-five, forty-five bets, if you as if you were at the roulette wheel or at a blackjack table. Right. And now, today, the best entrepreneurs are not the ones that have the most knowledge they're the ones that ask the right questions hmm. because technology allows you to find out the answer to almost any question you want to know the answer to today super quickly nice. so you can decide like back in the day we would come out with say six shoes and we thought we knew which ones were good and we had done focus groups with kids and 16 year old kids and 12 year old kids etc cetera, etc cetera. Right. but we would cross our fingers the first week those shoes hit the, hit the shelves to make you know hoping that they were going to sell right you all kind of hold your breath Well, today what you do is you test all those things with consumers through the Internet, through technology, and you already know (laughs) what's going to work and what's not going to work. And if you're taking guesses, you're not you're you're not humble enough to realize that you don't know the answers. So that level you had talked about earlier that, you know, being able to deal with pain, I think entrepreneurs that are really humble are great because they're like, hey, I don't know the answer, but I don't need to know the answer. I just need to know the question. And technology today helps these entrepreneurs figure out the answers.
0: Very interesting. Now, here's another question. Um, And I can't remember whether I asked that last time. uh, In terms of your focus of companies, is it all U.S.-based firms right now? Or are you already scanning the globe and therefore Europe and Asia entrepreneurs have a chance to work with you as well?
1: U.S. based companies, um, but what we found is overseas companies are pretty willing to set up LLC corporations um, and and have a U.S. based entity. So, are okay. you know, as long as they're willing to do that, we don't really care where they are.
0: Right. So, so out of the let's say thirteen, fourteen groups there, um, is there someone who originates let's say out of Asia or out of UK or Europe or somewhere else in the world or no.
1: Not no, yet. we were literally talking. Not yet. We're talking to one group that was at a, that is out of Ireland that okay. is going to literally set up a U.S. based uh, C corp, and and another one out of England that is uh, also setting up a U.S. based C corp. Okay. Um, so we we had gone. We have a partnership. We're uh, mentors for Yellow, which is Snap's accelerator program, and they always have you know in their cohort four or five companies from overseas. Hmm. Um, so we'll get there. You know, there's, there's, as you know, there's a lot of talent all over the world. Doesn't have to be here. It's just a matter of when, not if.
0: But yeah, so it's not, it's not restricted by design. It's just, uh, you know, by it hasn't happened yet. Um, so good. That's good for all my fellow entrepreneurs here in Asia who are listening. Um, that there is a chance to work with that amazing team of people there. Uh, back in the U.S. So I hope you get lots more calls now after people hear this here. Um, <laughs> because there is some amazing stuff, and I, I do some mentoring of of a few groups here, um, and it's, it's interesting from really from uh, from India to some groups in China, a group out of Israel, uh, just doing some crazy stuff um, in in a, in a very unique way. Even one group out of New Zealand. Um, so, uh, you know, we might have to come and, and knock on your door with some of those guys uh, even, when the time is That's right great. here. Yeah, there's some, uh, as I said, you know, very, very different spaces. Now, um, before we wrap, start wrapping it up here, I, I do would love to get a bit your thought on, on gaming and eSports, um, you know, because you mentioned that you're investing in a couple of those groups. You know, how do you see, again, coming more from, let's call it, the real world of sports, the traditional world of sports, like myself, uh, we're all, of course, drawn into um, what's happening in gaming and how's exploding and so on where do you see the, the 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 opportunities for both of them to work together as well as you know maybe gaming one day becoming bigger than than real than what I call real sports you know traditional stick, sports. And, ball, stick yeah, and ball stick and ball stuff yes yeah,
1: st- stick and stick and ball stick and ball sports yeah so i, I don't want to sound self-serving um, it, it might end up coming off that way in the, in the, in the internet days mm. uh, in the boom you we, like we raised money for hoops TV at a fifty million dollar valuation without a business, right. and the idea is in those businesses that they would lose tons of money over time and eventually make lots of money. Right. There are so many dead bodies, right, and so few, yep. and those few eventually make money. So I think what's going to happen in esports. First of all, I'm a true believer. Um, even though I am not a consumer, my kids are, hmm. um, and 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 I and I absolutely believe that esports is real and i believe um that it is um a worthwhile thing for these kids to be doing it's there there is no judgment here that it is worse than basketball or football it is different mm. um, and in some ways the access that technology provides it might be bigger because there's so many more kids who can play these sports than can actually play basketball or, or soccer at a high level. So I think esports is fantastic. What I think will change, and I think we're starting to see it in valuations, is companies eventually are going to have to make money. Yep. And so the monetizations the monetization side of this business is there's gonna what's gonna happen, I think, when the market comes back post COVID is there will be, you know, a flight to quality. The companies that can can generate cash flow, can make money, are going to be valued really highly. Mm-hmm. The companies that say, "Hey, listen, we can lose ten million, then we can lose twenty million, then we can lose $50 million, eventually, investors are going to say, "We're not willing to fund those companies." Mm-hmm. You gotta, you have to have it. Uh, you have to have revenue and a path to profitability. Right. And so, I think we saw, you know, we saw that in the internet days, right? Yes. Um, there's so many companies that died because they just couldn't find a way to make money. And so I think that's the same thing here today. Um, I do do believe that, you know, there will be millions and potentially billions of people watching the LCS, you know, and, and watching... The, the, the World Finals of, of, of not only Riot's League of Legends, but Call of Duty and, and whatever the next game great game is in five years. The, the last Absolutely. thing I'd say about this is interesting in terms of the games themselves. If you were to go back to the 1960s and you said hey, the best investment in the 60s is not going to be a baseball team but you should buy an NBA team basically for a dollar and the best return on capital is going to be basketball, then football, then baseball. Right. You know, in the 60s and 70s, and we talked about baseball is America's pastime. Right. So what happens, I think, with games today is that process is really scrunched. Right. So while I think league is here to stay as one of the dominant games, right. I think we will continue to see games three through five shuffle and it will take their, their life cycles will continue to be three years. And mm-hmm. so there's a significant risk in being wrong.
0: Yeah, yeah no, I, I think you're, you're spot on there. And and I know you mentioned earlier a couple of companies you're investing in, which sounded there was some esports part to it. What exactly there are they doing on uh, the, the, the businesses are you guys involved? So,
1: in? yeah, so there are basically three companies in the space. One is U.GG. It's a League of Legends platform. Uh, it's a website. It's now, I think, the 2,000 biggest website in the world. It's somewhere around. It might be bigger, it might be smaller. Um, millions upon millions of unique visitors every month and hundreds of millions of page views um, with almost 100 million minutes every month spent on that site. And what they basically do is they make it easier for League of Legends players to make pregame decisions about the champions they will play and how they'll build their champions and, and, and these kids are so smart they've been able to figure out how to dissect the data so that you, the consumer, can make better decisions. Oh, and, okay. and they are how do you spell I, you? Is I, saw, I it saw them white like it's the word you, you it's literally No, it's literally U, the letter U, dot G-G.
0: Oh, right, okay. It's U dot G-G, cool. And what's
1: interesting about these guys is when we invested in them, they had come from the world of finance. It's really similar, right? They had come from the world of finance. They loved eSports. And they they were 25 or 26 years old. Hmm. And I looked at them, and I was like, huh, they are to eSports what I was to basketball. My partners and I were 25 years old. We loved basketball. We knew the consumer. These guys know the eSports consumer in and out. And they're going to build a product that will absolutely respect their user. And they'll never, you know, I never have to worry about them cheapening their product for cash. They're always going to respect their consumer. And they've done a phenomenal job. The second company is at a company named lowkey.gg. Mm-hmm. Um, we just participated in one of their follow around rounds. Um, and a guy named Jesse Zhang uh, graduated from Harvard at 20. Uh, so he is significantly brighter than I. Um, and uh, <laughs> and uh, really has come up with this great concept that basically allows users in mm. multiple games to capture the games that the, the highlights from the games that they have played and share those highlights on social media oh, yeah. uh, and it's it's a really interesting sip service mm. that you know he and his tech team created and and, and they, doing revenue, um, so which is great. And and the third company's company named PowerSpike.tv, uh, Angelo Damiano was just listed as, I think, one of the Forbes 30 Under 30. We had met um, AJ when he was in Techstars, with Techstars Mentors, and he was in the Techstars Atlanta program. They're one of our partners. Right. Um, and uh, so, so AJ and his team basically have created a process that allows streamers and brands to connect in a really quick and meaningful way, so that if you're a Streamer, and you want to monetize your user base and your brand, and you want to connect with a streamer that is, uh, you know, has a really good reputation, then they've made a really seamless process for, for this to happen. And, and they also just raised it at a, at a significantly higher number. So those three companies. You know, I'll I, I, I kind of said be, a couple of years ago. Check him out ago, there,
0: yeah, definitely. Uh, that's yeah,
1: awesome. yeah. Like to, to your point, I kind of said a couple of years ago to Ryan, um, who is my partner in the lab, and, and uh, you know, she is twenty nine now. I think she was twenty five when we started. And, and in terms of talent, like she had come from the world of PR, and in about five minutes, I knew that she was going to be a great BC, and I needed her to be my partner. She has this view on these businesses that I just don't have. You know, she's really detailed and she's generationally different. Yep. Um, and she looked at these businesses and, and looked at what AJ was doing. It was like, Hey, look, this is, this is going to work. And I was like, okay, let's go with it. Hmm. I love that.
0: And, and but, I, she I, was, I, I, but it's
1: funny. I had said to her, I had said to her, if all we do for the next five years is say yes to every esports investment and yes to every sports gambling investment, we will probably make money. <laughs> it won't be really good. It won't be really good because there will be a lot of losses in there, yeah. as we talked about. Yeah. But those two spaces are, are, are just going to continue
0: hot. to grow. They're very hot, absolutely. Yeah, and, and I like the part which you pointed out a few times. Uh, you know, betting on young talent. Uh, and I know when I had Scott O'Neill on the podcast, uh, you know, he, he that was always a big thing for him as well. You know, and, and I guess in Harry Blitzer in general, um, you know, really, you know, giving young young talent a, a chance to to shine. And, and I think that sounds like what you guys are doing. Obviously, with the Sixers' innovation lab here as well. So that is uh, that was great and a nice deep dive into it. And, and I know we're coming to the end here. Uh, it's late at night, there for you already. Um, but I have I, I want to wrap it up. How we sort of started and getting back to your basketball roots because you are a coach and a very, quite a successful yes, coach here in uh, in high school. Um, you know, and again, it, it sounds like from you know, listening to your what you were saying earlier. Really, this is sort of. A big thing of passion for you as well, right? Coaching young kids—it's uh, obviously different than yes. when you coach them here at, uh, at the Innovation Lab, where it's more about you know generating, building a business and making money. Uh, in high school, you're teaching them to probably be good students and and maybe one day have a career in basketball or or just whatever, be a good person, right? Uh, share a little about that. You know, that's a great warm down session here for us.
1: Yeah, so I I think I knew when I was 17 playing high school basketball that I eventually wanted to be a high school basketball coach. Uh, I love basketball. I love kids. I love making a difference. Uh, So when I had the opportunity after we sold on one, I went to the the Westtown School where my kids were in school. At at that time, my oldest was in kindergarten. Mm. uh, And this wonderful, diverse Quaker community about 15 minutes from where he lived. And I said, do you need a volunteer assistant for your basketball team? Um, and after two, and, and they said, yes, come on. And 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 I just studied and studied and studied. I, I have over 100 DVDs on basketball coaching. And, and I remember my first day of coaching, I thought I knew a lot about the game because I had played it for years. And I realized, oh, wow, I don't know anything. The level <laughs> of detail. The level of detail that a good coach has versus a bad coach versus a player, it's right. just it's totally different. So I really had to study. Um, and it's been an incredible experience. Like I, I coached high school basketball starting out because I wanted to make a difference in the lives of kids. I didn't want to go into politics and I didn't want to live in the not-for-profit world. But this, the West End School is a high academic school, has 20% student bodies international, 50% out of state, 25% students of color. It's just this really diverse community of incredibly smart kids. So... What what happened was we got really, again, lucky in that early on, a couple kids who ended up going to play one, Daniel Ochefu, uh, came early in, in my career. He ended up winning a national championship as a starting center at Villanova. Mm. And he came, and when he came, he was unknown. And then all of a sudden, he blossomed at the time into, I think, the 50th-ranked player in the United States. And we had a number of other kids who kept moving up. And so if they came as division three players he ended up as Ivy players They became as Ivy players ended up being high majors. So now we've coached, you know, three lottery picks, two guys in the G league, again, tw- I think 20 odd division one players actually. Interestingly, my own son, my oldest son plays golf in college. My middle son is now a freshman at Georgetown um, mm-hmm. on the basketball team, scholarship player and Ooh. put up buckets the other night. So it's all kind of come full circle, but yeah, I love it. I, 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 uh, being a coach is who I am. And, you know, we had a week off from, from, uh, from basketball uh, in the fall. And after, you know, the week, I was like, oh, I needed a break. And the first minute I was back in the gym, I was like, yeah, I just love being in the gym with these kids. So, right. you know, the, if I could fast forward, you know, my father just passed this year at 80. And I could, if I could, for the next 30 years from nine to five and 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 i'm not really a nine o'clock guy i'm more like a 10 30 to six guy <laughs> um from 10 from, from 10 30 to six be a venture capitalist with a six innovation lab and then from seven to nine be a high school basketball coach till i'm 80 that'd be uh that'd be a great way to spend the next 30 years i love
0: that yeah and again as you said it's coaching in both sense right uh, different type of coaching it's but the same at the end of the day yeah exactly yeah, I love that. That's uh, exactly right. Yeah, uh, awesome. Uh, that is. That's. Uh, I think this this is a, such a great way to to wrap it up and finish up here. Um, thank you so much for your time. This was fun. Um, I can tell you this time we did record. Uh, Good news, <laughs> right there at the end. Um, and as I said, I hope we can do this again. I, I love the conversation. Uh, I love what you guys are doing there uh, with the Innovation Lab. Um, hopefully, as I said, one day we'll have someone here from Asia join you, and maybe there is a way to participate in some fashion. Uh, you know, I love this stuff. And please send my regards to everyone else, uh, Scott, and of course, a uh, shout out to Lara here earlier. And uh, have a awesome. great uh, you know holiday period there, right? Christmas and New Year's just around the corner. So uh, happy holidays.
1: My man, thank you so much, Marcus. Had a blast. Happy holidays, and stay safe.
0: Definitely, same to you. Cheers. Thanks, brother. Bye bye. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Luer podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.